Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. The fourth of the Gospel accounts we want to read this morning in John chapter 4. The focus of our time will be verses 1 through 42, but we're not going to read the entire passage now, but I will jump around in chapter 4. We're going to begin reading in verse 7. John chapter 4, verse 7. Please follow along as I read. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now please skip down to verse 16. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now please get down to verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Let's pray once more. Dear Lord, please come and help us. In the next 45 minutes, so much good can be done and so much harm. So, Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from evil, that Satan would have no access to this place and no access to our hearts, and you as the doer of all good, please come and do good to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here at Emmanuel, we endorse a certain method of preaching. It's called expository preaching. It's not the only method of preaching out there but it's the method that we believe is the best approach to the preaching of God's word. Expository preaching is that method of preaching that seeks to make the main point of the passage of scripture the main point of the text. It's an effort to expound the Bible and to open up its contents rather than man's opinion, man's philosophy, etc. It's not the only way to preach, but we do believe it's the best and most faithful way to open up God's Word. Well, this morning, uh, I'm going to deviate a little bit from that method of expository preaching. It's okay to do it when you acknowledge that you're doing it, okay? <laughs> Last week uh, was an effort at um, opening up John 4, verses 1 through 42 in a fairly straightforward, expository-type manner, opening up the contents of the passage and explaining uh, the passage of Scripture. Uh, But today, we're doing something a little bit differently. We're returning to the same passage of Scripture, and this morning, I want to ask a question of the passage, which is a little bit different than expounding the passage. 
We're going to this text, and I want to ask a question I've thought of for the benefit of our church and to seek to draw from this passage what fruit we can in answer to the question. And the question I wish to ask is this. What does this text in John 4, verses 1 through 42, teach us about the church? Or more specifically, what can we learn here in this passage about the sort of church we ought to be here at Emmanuel Church? What can we learn in John 4? What should we see that informs the way we do church here at Emmanuel? And so this message is largely going, largely going to be geared at application, not so much exposition, though we will be in the text. The goal is to bring some points of application for our church family. And here are the three points I'd like to establish this morning and make use of John 4 in that effort. The first is this. The church overcomes natural human boundaries through the gospel. The church overcomes natural human boundaries through the gospel. Secondly, the church is made up of sinners saved by grace. Our church, every church, made up of sinners saved by grace. And thirdly, the church is on a mission. The church is on a mission. So let's consider these points in turn. First of all, the church overcomes natural human boundaries through the gospel. Can we read again verses seven through 10 together? A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This woman at the well is a Samaritan. Jesus is a Jew. And last week we considered the extreme ethnic and personal and religious tensions that existed between Samaritans and Jews in those days. She even goes on to say Jews and Samaritans don't Mix Literally, they don't drink after each other. Okay, they don't associate with one another. She's a Samaritan, he's a Jew. She's a woman, and he's a man. And we get a hint in verse 27 that that's a problem. The disciples come back, Jesus is alone talking to this woman, and they marvel at the scene that he is speaking and engaging with this woman. Perhaps there was some moray or custom that Jesus was violating in addressing her. But she's not just any woman. We see later on in the passage she's a loose woman. She's had five husbands, and the man, presumably she's in a sexual relationship now, is not her husband. So she's a loose woman of Samaria, and he is not just any man. Jesus was a Jewish rabbi. So here's this religious teacher from Jerusalem speaking with this Samaritan woman of ill repute. And we also learn later they worship in different places and have different views of God. She worships in Mount Gerizim. He worships on Mount Jerusalem. If anyone is out of bounds, it's this woman. There's no one more untouchable than this woman. If we were to take a poll as to who is the least likely to come to church next week, it would be this woman. And I'm sure you couldn't come up with a person less likely to be engaged by a Jewish rabbi in 30 AD than the Samaritan woman. Now it's here that I want to highlight just, a, just an important sort of interpretive point about the teachings of Jesus and the parables of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the various scenes and episodes of his life. We have to appreciate that very often the context or the setting of Jesus' conversations his miracles, his parables, contribute something to the larger point that Jesus is making, okay? The context, I mean, apart from the words themselves, but the context serves the larger point that Jesus wants to make. So for example, when Jesus wishes in John chapter two to demonstrate that he is that coming fulfillment of the new covenant promise that in the new covenant, abundance and life and joy would come, what does he do? He provides wine at a wedding as a sign of a, the very context, says something about the larger point being made. When Jesus in John 3 wants to establish the point that if anyone is to enter his kingdom, that you must be born again, that is be inwardly transformed and cleansed radically, 
He's in a conversation with a fellow Jewish rabbi who externally would have been as clean as could be. He was a teacher of Israel. And yet Jesus wants to establish the point with the new birth that he needs something so much greater. The setting, the context says something about the larger point. Well, we have the same thing going on here in our text this morning. Jesus wants to make the point that he is the savior of the world. So what does he do? He engages an adulterous Samaritan woman. Who's the most out of bounds person I could be talking to to establish this point? And by going to her and demonstrating to her and through her that he is the savior of the world, his point has that much more potency and clarity. The setting itself is serving the larger point. Jesus makes a point by targeting this woman in particular. A Samaritan, a loose woman, someone who is unclean, untouchable, doesn't worship on the right mountain, all kinds of brokenness and need, a million reasons why it shouldn't be her, and Jesus says, perfect. I'm going after her. What a better way to show that I am the Savior of the world. My gospel overcomes all human boundaries. He engages a Samaritan woman. Jesus was not a slave to the bigotry of his day. He was not a slave to the things that naturally alienate men and women. None of these natural divisions prevented Jesus from offering himself to her. There's no pedigree that's required of her to become a follower of Christ. There's no qualification except the acknowledgement of her need for a savior. There's no pedigree you have to achieve to come to Christ, and this story of this woman illustrates that. There's no qualifications to come to Jesus other than to know you don't have any qualifications. The only qualifications is to know you have none and to come to Jesus broken and needy. Well, what's the lesson that I wish to draw out for our church, for Emmanuel, meeting here at 407 Feetree Road? We as a church must recognize that the gospel overcomes all human boundaries. The church must understand that the gospel does not discriminate. The church must understand that the gospel breaks down the most trenchant divides between men and women, be they on the basis of race, age, gender, socioeconomic status, culture, background, family history. The gospel is for all. And Jesus is the savior of the world and all the different kinds of people in the world. The church is the community that is created, formed, and shaped by the gospel. And therefore, natural human boundaries have no place here. And there are lots of things, right, that differentiate and divide people. There are many of us here in this room. We're we're different on a number of scores. But I think there are two things, I, I know there are two things, that unite every single man, woman, boy, and girl in the world. The first is that we're all sinners. We're all sinners. From the smallest child here to the oldest adult, we're all sinners. The second is that we all need the grace of God. We're all sinners. We all need the grace of God. These two things unite every person in this room right now. They unite Sue and Herb and Kelly and Gunner, and Caleb, and Ben, and him, and her, and that young lady right there, and that young man right there. All of us are united in sin, and all of us are united in our need for the grace of God. Someone comes into the church and looks very different from you. You can count on these two things. That person is a sinner just like you. Same native thirst that is in your heart is in hers. And secondly, that person needs the grace of God just like you do just like I do. True of every person we come into contact with. And I believe that a realistic view of sin and a high view of the grace of God obliterates boundaries between people. A realistic view of sin, that I'm a sinner and you're a sinner. We're united in Adam, we're united in sin. Oh, and we both so desperately need the grace of God. Obliterates all human boundaries where people are united in sin and in the grace of God, ethnic divisions have no place. Class divisions have no place. Gender divisions have no place. I referenced a moment ago, verse 27, the disciples come back and they marvel that Jesus was talking with a woman. 
I mean, no one would say to him, who do you seek or why are you talking with her? But they marveled that Jesus is crossing all these boundaries and talking to this woman. Why do they marvel? That word is thaumatso. It's not used a whole lot in the Bible. To marvel, to be amazed, to stand in wonder. It's the same word that's used to describe the disciples when they see Jesus risen from the dead. They thaumatso, they marvel. It's the same word used to describe the crowds in Acts 2 verse 7 as they see the disciples speaking in tongues they formerly did not know. Literally, supernaturally speaking in other languages in the crowd, thaumatsos, they marvel. And that same word's used to describe the disciples' shock and amazement that Jesus is crossing all these boundaries to engage this woman. Well, why do the disciples marvel? Well, because they clearly only see, when they look at this interchange going on, Samaritan, woman, high noon, middle of the day, no one else around. They're seeing with earthly eyes. They don't see her the way that Jesus sees her, namely a sinner, like all of us, in need of grace, like all of us. The more I read John's gospel, the more I believe John, the evangelist, the apostle who writes the gospel, he positions his chapters very deliberately. You understand John is a chronological unfolding of the life of Jesus, but John himself tells us in chapter 21 that he was selective with his material. He says, I could have told you, I could have filled up all the books in the world with stories about the events of Jesus' life, but I didn't do that. I chose my material in particular that you might believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's selective with his material. More than that, he's selective with the placing of his material. And I'm so impressed with both the striking contrast and similarity between John 3 and John 4. What happens in John 3? Jesus engages Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, the great rabbi who comes to him by night, and he tells Nicodemus that though he's externally clean, he needs to be born from above. He needs to be baptized with water and the Spirit and inwardly needs to be transformed and needs to be cleansed. And right after he talks to Nicodemus, what does he say? He talks about his redemptive purposes for the world. As God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God didn't send his son to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Even sinners like Nicodemus who don't quite understand the predicament they're in, he's the savior to them. Then John chapter four, what do we get? Probably the most different person you could think of. There's not two people on earth more dissimilar than Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And Jesus engages her. And what's the climactic point that's made about Jesus in verse 42 at the end of the whole exchange? This is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. There's this contrast between these two sinners who are so dissimilar in every way. The clean, uh, externally tidy, morally upright Nicodemus. And then there's the woman with five husbands, a man now who's not her husband, so broken and needy, trying to hide from Jesus. But see, there's this unity that John sees in both of these two sinners. Though they're so different externally, they are both sinners, and they're both in need of the grace of God. And in both passages, John is trying to show us that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of religious hypocrites like Nicodemus, and he's the Savior of broken and needy women like the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus who comes at night to, to hide the facade and the pedigree and to maintain that uh, uh, facade, and the woman who comes at high noon bearing her shame for all to see. It's a striking contrast, but there's this unity that binds them. They're both sinners, and they both need the grace of God. There's a purpose to these passages being positioned side by side. I wonder if you see these people, Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, as fundamentally different. John does not. Jesus does not. They're both members of the world, and they both need the Savior of the world. They're both sinners in need of the grace of God. 
Emmanuel Church, ethnic, social, and cultural divisions are not permitted to have place among us if we truly believe the gospel. The gospel levels all. Tells us we're all sinners and we all need the grace of God. And the gospel tells us that Jesus is the savior of the world. Of Jews and Samaritans. Of people on this side of the tracks and that side of the tracks. People in West Winston and people in East Winston of millennials and of baby boomers, of introverts and extroverts, of people who can hardly pay their bills and people who are making six figures, of well-ordered nuclear families and broken dysfunctional families, of people whose lives look clean on the outside and of people whose lives are an absolute mess for all to see. And this is the point of application for us. We must be a church for Nicodemus and for the Samaritan woman. We have to be a church for both of them. For the clean and tidy sinners that want to maintain that facade and need new birth, and for the people whose lives are a mess for all to see, who are thirsty, looking for true, lasting, living water. Jesus is the savior of the world, and the church must recognize that human boundaries can only be overcome through the gospel. I said this sermon would be largely geared toward application, so I want to be as practical as possible. And I recognize this may get us a little further afield from the passage. But I reflected on, on this point, on this passage, with our church in view, and I asked myself, what are the ways in which we are going to be challenged in our efforts to live this out? That is, being a church for the world, all kinds of sinners in need of the grace of God, where are we going to be challenged? And what will be the hurdles for us to overcome I've just listed a few of them. One that comes to mind is age divisions. Young people, older people, everything in between. Service ends. Well, we see all the 60s and over congregate together and plan their lunch and their functions. And all the millennials get together and they go to coffee shops, I guess. Are we going to be a church for older folks and younger folks? Listen, if If we're a church for one or the other, that says nothing about the supernatural unity created by the gospel. It says a lot about natural human boundaries that divide us all. We need to be conscientious that we're a church for the youngest among us and the oldest among us. How about class divisions? People who are quite comfortable and secure, don't have many financial pressures, and those who are barely making ends meet. I wonder, do, does our fellowship reflect the supernatural unity we have in sin and in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are we like the world, where the rich people hang out with the rich people, the poor people hang out with the poor people? Will we, we be a church for those in need and those who have plenty? How about divisions on the basis of season of life? So all the young families hang out together. All the empty nesters hang out together. All the singles hang out together. Do we recognize that season of life doesn't define us or our church, but rather our commonality in Adam and in Christ, in sin and in grace? I said it was going to be practical, right? Homeschool, private school, public school. Are we going to be a church for all of them? Or are all the homeschool families going to hang out together? And all the private school families going to hang out together? And the public school families hanging out together. Homeschoolers, if you want to hang out somewhere, there's a place for you. It's called the homeschool co-op. It's called the homeschool conference. Where you don't even have to be a Christian to be there. You just have to love homeschooling. Private schoolers and public schoolers, there's places to hang out, right? But those things can't divide us in the church. We can't be a church that favors one model of parenting over another if it's not clearly sinful. We have folks in this church who have kids in homeschool, private school, and public school. And as I hear them tell their various stories and talk about their kids, I think they're all doing what's wise and what's right. We're not going to favor one style of education here. How about just parenting styles in general? I don't want my kids to hang out with that family. They have different rules than us. I was speaking to a mother not very long ago, and she was telling me, I just want to be in a church where all the parents think the same way. 
There's not a woman in this church, okay? My simple response was, why? Why? That's not a church, that's a club. And there are places you can go to achieve that sort of solidarity. But in the church, see, all kinds of people are getting saved. I would imagine if Nicodemus were a father, he might parent his kids a little differently than the Samaritan woman. But they're both sinners saved by grace. They both need the Lord Jesus, and if they're born again, and if they have living water and eternal life, they need to be in one church together and somehow make it work. We cannot divide on these sorts of things. How about different views of Christian liberty? Okay, this brother's comfortable seeing that movie. We're consuming alcohol moderately. This brother will not, and is unwilling to touch alcohol at all. Well, the Bible does not tell us whether or not it's right or wrong to drink alcohol. It's a matter of conscience, right? And we're not going to be the church for all those in Winston-Salem who want to abstain from alcohol, nor are we going to be those who think everybody should drink alcohol moderately. Different views of Christian liberty will divide us, and they will test us. Will we be the church that honors and respects those boundaries of Christian liberty? How about people just generally who are not like us? Like, have you ever prayed this prayer like, Lord, please save this Samaritan woman in my life, but don't send her to my church? Are you willing to embrace and to receive sinners very much unlike yourself, who may be nothing like you on the outside, but have the most vital things in common with you, that they're sinners in their hearts and they need the grace of God? of Christ. Friends, I wonder, sincerely, can our church receive and love and serve a man like Nicodemus and a woman like the Samaritan woman? It's tough. How are we going to do it? I'm sure I don't know. I can tell you how we're not going to do it, though. How about by being a church that serves only one demographic? So our mission here at Emmanuel is we're going to be the church for Nicodemus in Winston-Salem. We're going to be the church for the Samaritan woman. Just in the last year, I talked to two pastors in the triad who said things very similar to that. Look, we're really just a church for millennials. We're just trying to reach the millennials. Just trying to reach Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman. We're going to limit ourselves to that slice of the pie. Another pastor said to me, we're really a church for the outcasts. Not for the the tidy, more religious type people, church-going folks. We're for the outcasts and for the rebels. We're for the Samaritan woman. That says nothing about what the church ought to be if it's formed and shaped and fashioned by the gospel. The gospel shapes a church that receives sinners of whatever stripe, be they clean and tidy like Nicodemus or be they a filthy mess like the woman of Samaria. Or how about churches that that want to reach both? We'd love to reach Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, but once they're in, let's be sure to divide them up. So we'll have the Nicodemus Sunday school class, and we'll have the Samaritan woman Sunday school class. We'll have the Nicodemus small group and the Samaritan woman small group. We'll have the empty nesters class, and we'll have the singles class. And we'll have the young family small group, and we'll have the young married small group, right? We're about to announce our new small group rosters and every member of our church is assigned to a roster and regular attenders are welcome to sign up as well. And in preparing those rosters, we were very deliberate to make sure reflected among each group was people in different demographics. We weren't asking ourselves, what people already get along really well with each other? Let's put them in the same group. Why? Because we're the church. And the church embraces the gospel that overcomes all human boundaries. And we don't want our small groups to reflect natural human boundaries, but the supernatural grace of God in our lives. And so let me tell you a complaint that will go straight to my trash folder, okay? Hey, I don't see a lot of my close friends in my small group. That's the point. We don't have a small group of Jews. A small group of Samaritans. We have a small group of sinners in need of the grace of God, and you have that in common. One final way I'll mention, and this gets close to home, one way we'll not realize 
this vision of a church that overcomes human boundaries by the gospel? How about families who only extend hospitality to Nicodemus? Nicodemus has good manners. He doesn't spill on the nice rug. He always seems to have the right word to say in conversation, and he's, he's our kind of folk. We're gonna open up our home, it's gonna be folks like him. Or there are some who would never show hospitality to Nicodemus. My stuff isn't that nice. I don't have very nice clothes. I'm not a very good cook. Our kids sometimes misbehave, and I think Nicodemus would look down on that. We're more comfortable having the Samaritan woman over. She's a mess just like I am. I don't have to impress her. And on the other hand, there are those who would never have the Samaritan woman over because of what it might say about them. Someone like that in my house, she's kind of a pig. She's kind of rude. She just says whatever comes into her mind, no filter. Will we be a church that even in our hospitality, even around our dinner table, reflects this reality, that the church overcomes all human boundaries through the gospel? How are we going to reach Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman? I don't know, but I think I know where to start. Start with a realistic view of sin and a high view of the grace of God. Start with human thirst and need that unites us all and with the gospel of grace that is the only hope for sinners like Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. And watch the natural human boundaries dissolve. Second major point, and I recognize I spent a great deal of time on the first. We'll move more quickly now. We've seen the church overcomes natural human boundaries through the gospel. Second, we must recognize that the church is made up of sinners saved by grace. The church, if it is indeed the true church, is made up of sinners saved by grace. I'll remind you of what we read in John 4, verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I don't know if that sinks in with us when we read that. Five husbands. This isn't in 21st century American divorce culture, where most people have had one failed marriage. This is, this is in the ancient Samaritan world. Five failed marriages, and now a live-in boyfriend. A church is made up of people with baggage, people with pasts, people with present struggles, people with sins, people who are broken and needy. This woman's past didn't just leave her once she accepted Christ. Oh, her life was changed. She was destined for everlasting life, but, but this woman's past didn't just vanish when she embraced Christ. Her present struggles didn't leave her right away. She was a mess and she came to Jesus as a mess and now she's a Christian and she still has this big mess on her hands. Listen, her whole life and, and your whole life, you know this, isn't just put together all of a sudden upon following Jesus Christ. She still had her boyfriend. Had to do something about that. That relationship wasn't dissolved just by virtue of her believing on Jesus. She had to do some hard work and had to address some issues in her life. She still had the scars of the last five marriages. She still had perhaps all her bad habits. Perhaps she was a victim of abuse and had all the difficulties and hardships associated with that. She still has a big mess on her hands. But now she's a Christian. And now she's a member of Christ Church. And she's part of a community of people who are very much like her, with a past, with baggage, with struggles, with sins. Brothers and sisters, until the return of Christ, the church will always be made up of sinners saved by grace. Sinners saved by grace in this room right now. There are a few implications here. I'm going to list four. So these are four subheads to the second point. First of all, as long as sinners are coming to Christ, the church will be a messy place. At least, it ought to be. As long as sinners are coming to Christ, the church will be a messy place. You want a church full of clean and polished people with no baggage, no mess, no struggles? You can find churches like that in Winston-Salem. I assure you, you will not find the Lord Jesus in those churches. 
He refers to such assemblies as synagogues of Satan, where his spirit is not present. But among those who feel their need of him, of sinners who need his grace and acknowledge it as such, he's present. You could also come into a church like ours, and you can sit on the back pew and just attend and then slip out. And, and you may entertain the illusion that there's no mess here, no baggage here, no dysfunction here. But if you engage in relationships and if you come to small groups and if you have people in your home and you get to know people, you'll learn very quickly, we're all full of dysfunction. We all got baggage. This church, our lives are very messy because we're sinners saved by the grace of God. And the more you press into the church, the more you'll encounter that mess and that dysfunction. All right, second implication here. We must learn to see each other as fellow sinners in need of grace. We must learn to see each other as fellow sinners in need of grace. There's a very good book on marriage I sometimes recommend. It's called, What Did You Expect? by Paul Tripp. What did you expect? That's the name of the book. The simple idea is, fallen world, two sinful people, what did you expect? Right? People have all these glamorous views of what marriage should be like, but just a, sounding a note of realism. Fallen world, two sinful people, a devil who hates your marriage. The same book needs to be written about the church. Fallen world, bunch of sinful people, and now they're all hanging out together. Now your mess is splashing onto my mess. My dysfunction is tangled up in your dysfunction. Bunch of sinful people, now we're all together and we're supposed to see each other all the time? Get involved in each other's lives? Isn't that going to, to lend disaster to the church? Isn't that gonna destroy us? If all these sinners get together in a fallen world and actually try to live as a family together? So often, people are surprised when they encounter sin in the church and sin in the lives of their friends and of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It shouldn't be that way. Rather, what did you expect? We should expect sin and baggage and brokenness and need. And we as a church will be far more successful in truly realizing what a church shaped by the gospel ought to be if we can appreciate that all these people around me are broken and needy just like me. We must see each other as fellow sinners we must see each other as those who thirst and need living water in Christ. We must see each other as fellow pilgrims on the way to the celestial city, assaulted by sin and Satan daily in need of Christian companionship and in need of the grace of God. And the point, brothers and sisters, is that we're all in this sinful mess together. We're all in this mess together. And by God's grace, with the help of His Spirit, We'll make it through it together. But I know we will not make it through this sinful mess without each other. We come alongside one another as fellow sinners, as fellow traveling companions and pilgrims on the way to heaven. And we strengthen each other, we help each other, we see one another as sinners in need of the grace of God. Third implication, we must respond to sinners like Christ. It's so striking to me the way that Jesus responds to the Samaritan woman just full of grace, tender toward her, gentle toward her. He doesn't try to shame her and condemn her, but he's, he's gentle with her. He fulfills with her what it was said of him, that a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. And we should respond like him to the sinners that we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. We must respond to them like Christ, with tenderness and with gentleness, with open hearts and with kind words, we must point them to the Savior. Listen, the, the sinner in our midst, and I'm talking about believers and unbelievers, because you don't cease to be a sinner once you're converted, right? The sinner in our midst cannot be seen as something other, as something alien, something none of us are willing to get close to. Jesus got up close and personal with sinners, and he loved them. And if Jesus was able to minister to this woman, he who was without sin, how much more so ought we?
We're made of the same stuff as the Samaritan woman. Listen, the gap between Jesus and the Samaritan woman was wide indeed. It's not very wide between us and her. Listen, you're a lot more like the Samaritan woman than you want to admit. And you're a lot less like Jesus than you want to admit. We share more solidarity with her than we do Christ because we're sinful men and women as well, just like her, with the same native cravings and thirst that she has, the same need for the grace of God and for the living water that Christ himself provides. It should not be hard for us to sympathize with sinners. And as Christians, as ambassadors of Christ, we must represent our Savior to sinners. Someone in the church in a discipleship relationship, in a hospitality context, in a small group, in the mingling in the hallways after the service, talks to you about their lives and opens up about brokenness and need and sin, what an opportunity you have to represent the Lord Jesus to that person, to embody the Savior to that individual. Will we be those types of Christians? Fourth and final implication under the second point. We must direct one another to Christ who alone can address our thirst. This is the great goal. We don't just sit in our sin and our need, but we direct one another to Christ. Part of our job is to help one another to move away from broken cisterns and empty wells and to direct one another to the spring of life in Jesus Christ. We must be a people who regularly point one another to Jesus. That great phrase, look to Christ, that should be the most common phrase in our vocabulary as a church. That's where pretty much every conversation should end. Brother, sister, look to Christ. I'm gonna pray for you, I wanna encourage you, I wanna be there for you, but I I urge you, look to Christ. Pursue the living water that's found in him. I wanna help you to move away from this empty well and this broken cistern. I wanna direct you to living water. We have to be that kind of a church. Two weeks from now, 25 or so new members are going to join the church. This is the sort of church we need to be. If you are uncomfortable with people being involved in your spiritual life and asking you the hard questions, you're being warned now. (laughs) But if you want people to receive you as Christ, and if you're willing to receive them as Christ, and if you're willing to involve yourselves into the broken mess that is in all of our lives, to engage yourself with our baggage and all of our dysfunction, well, come on in. Because that's the church we want to seek to be by God's help. Third and final point. Third and final point. The church is on a mission. The church is on a mission. Please look with me again at verse 30 through 38. They, the Samaritans, went out of the town and we're coming to him, that is Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now my heading here is that the church is on a mission. Where am I getting that? Verse 34, Jesus tells us he's here to execute the will of his Father. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work, or the work can be translated his mission or his task, which we learn in other places in John's gospel, is to save people and to give them eternal life. That's the work of Jesus. That's the will of his Father that he must fulfill. Then Jesus, in verse 35, starts talking about harvest. He says, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. In those days, the idea is you plant something at the right time, right season of the year, Four months later, you have a harvest. It's the way the rhythms of the seasons work, and they would have recognized this. Then he says, look, I tell you, 
Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. First of all, he's saying, my kingdom won't work that way. I don't have to wait four months for nothing. I want to plant a seed like I've just done in this Samaritan woman and then see a harvest of souls coming out of Sychar. Do that in five minutes. My kingdom is not of this world. It's a supernatural kingdom. You think in terms of waiting. I'm telling you already the harvest is here. And then some commentators suggest, I think this was probably true. When Jesus says to his disciples, look, lift up your eyes, see the harvest is coming. Literally, they would have looked up and they would have seen a crowd of Samaritans coming out of the city. Right, verse 30 said, right? And they were coming out of the town to see him. And here the disciples look up and they see the harvest coming. They're gonna wait four months. The harvest is already here. The fields are white for harvest. And then verse 37, Jesus says, the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. In other words, you didn't do the sowing, but you will do the reaping. You will be those who reap. And then verse 38, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, who are the others that Jesus is referring to? Others have labored in the fields. You're entering into their labor, and your job is going to do the reaping. Commentators are all over the map on this. Could be the prophets, could be John the Baptist. I personally think it's the Father and the Son. Jesus refers to work already up in verse 34. He says, I'm here to do the work of my Father. There's this mission we have. We're the ones who labored, are drawing the souls of men and women to us, and you enter into our labor. Others have labored, you've entered into their labor. They have labored and sown, and the disciples are going to reap a harvest. So what's the implication for the church I want to make? The church is on a mission. And that is a mission of reaping. Reaping the souls of sinners in need of the grace of God. What the Father and the Son have already sown. Namely, elect sinners saved by the grace of Christ. God is sovereignly drawing men and women to himself. And we are sent out as his agents to reap his harvest. He says, look up, lift up your eyes. See the Samaritans coming to me. In need of grace, the harvest is here. The fields are white for harvest. And he says, look up, Emmanuel. See, have eyes to see the souls of men and women around you in Winston-Salem. And indeed, the fields are white for harvest. And listen, that phrase, the fields are white for harvest, I don't think that means these people are so close, they've heard the gospel so many times, and they're about to believe, you just gotta go in and seal the deal. Close the sale. What is it that makes the fields white? It's that they're sinners in need of grace. You go to an unreached people group, fields are white for harvest. It's sinners here in need of the grace of God. That's what makes the fields white. Not that this particular demographic is particularly open to the claims of Christianity. It's that they're sinners who don't know about Jesus, and they need to. And are the fields not white around us? White unto harvest. Are we going to be a church that engages gladly in that mission of sowing and reaping and entering into the labor of the Godhead? So much of what we do in this church is sowing. Sermons are preached, classes are taught, Bible studies are held, small groups gathered together, various members meet one-on-one -on -one for discipling, various ones are engaged in evangelism. It's all sowing and sowing and sowing. Why? So that we might do the reaping. Are you excited and energized and enthused to enter into the labor of the Godhead? And our privilege is to do the work of reaping from the fields that are white unto harvest, the souls of men and women who are sinners in need of the grace of God. And this has been my concern in this message. I pray that God helps us to go out into a world that's needy, to 
draw men and women into this fellowship of believers, into this church. We want to see sinners brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But what kind of church will they enter? Will they come to know Jesus as a Savior, one who is tender, one who offers living water, who's sympathetic to sinners who are in need of grace, and then find something different among his people? Or will we be a church that overcomes natural human boundaries through the gospel? A church that sees one another as sinners in need of grace, as works in progress, as people who yet need to be saved to the uttermost. Will they come into a church that is on a mission to seek and to save those who are lost, wish to go out into the fields that are white for harvest and to see a harvest of souls won to Jesus Christ? Emmanuel, this is the church we must be, a church for this poor woman. So much baggage, so much need. Are we going to be a church for sinners? And are we going to reflect the grace of our Savior, the Lord Jesus? who was said to be a friend of sinners. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would give to us a very realistic view of sin, that you would help us to believe and to understand what you tell us in your word about our sinful hearts. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us grace and faith to believe in the grace that you offer in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Give us the highest thoughts and views of your grace. And please, Lord, be gracious with us. We know you're a friend of sinners. We know that you are one who seeks that which was lost, one who draws near to women like this woman in our text. We know that you love offering yourself as living water to thirsty people. Lord, our lives have depended on that. If not for your grace, we would still thirst yet. Please satisfy us with living water and help us to be those who bring that water to others and who direct others to, to that spring of life that is in Jesus Christ. Help us to be a church that is a safe haven for sinners who recognize their need for the grace of God. Please make us to be faithful in communicating to such people the gospel by which they can be saved. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.